time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test no, he's the one, yeah Alright, let's jump into the word I'm, again, elated to be able to, to preach this word this week I am, um, I, th- this, this series, I, I, I think God is up to something And I'm, I'm believing God, that God is going to do something mighty and powerful in our midst um, through the ahas that come out of this time together um, in this particular uh, in this particular series. So uh, we're kicking off a brand new series. It's entitled Be the Church, and it's meant to push us. We're, we're coming hopefully out of a pandemic. Hopefully things are going to be back to somewhat of normal for an extended period of time. But I think that we've learned something over this time, and I'm hoping that we'll leverage this series to really challenge us to not just go back to going to church, but to think about something a lot more um, life-changing and dynamic than that, to actually what it looks like to be the church. So uh, I'm going to be jumping into uh, Acts chapter uh, chapter 2. Uh, if you miss any of our last series, go check out our YouTube channel. The stuff is there. You can also go to the Dope Church podcast, subscribe to both of those if you have not already. And um, and they'll bless you and you can share them with other people. Uh, don't forget, we are returning to in-person service next Sunday. So Sunday, uh, March the March the 13th, returning to in-person service. 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 2345 South Michigan Avenue. But we will definitely be continuing as a digital first church. We are absolutely continuing our um, offering of our services online. So you'll be able to stream with us from the comfort of your crib or whatever you're doing on Sunday. Um, You can stream us from brunch wherever you're at at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time as always. Amen. Let's uh, let's jump into a... um, a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the word. Lord, thank you so much for giving me this chance to preach to your people. Pray that you'll allow me to preach with power, with courage, with conviction, and with clarity uh, in a way that makes you pleased and in a way that is life-changing for us, your people. Pray that you will simply speak your truth through me and pour out and pour back into me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Title of today's sermon is The Cooperative Economics Church. The Cooperative Economics Church. Um, Acts 2 and 44 from the Good News Translation. It says, All believers continued together in close fellowship and shared their belongings with one another. Next uh, verses that I want to read to you are from the New Living Translation. This is Acts chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. It says all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. 
There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Verse 36, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold the field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Once again, I want to talk about the cooperative economics church, the cooperative economics church. Uh, Over the past two years, the concept of church has been uprooted and challenged. The paradigm, which agreed that church was a place that one goes to rather than a community one is a part of, has been troubled. Once upon a time, the church was synonymous with a building, a physical structure where people gathered, where songs were sung, where a preacher preached, where a weekly Sunday morning production happened. But for the past two years, for many of those Sunday mornings, those buildings, those physical structures have been closed. People have not gathered there. Productions have not happened there on Sunday mornings, yet the church has still operated. This period of time has forced many people to pull apart the church from the building. That even though the building housed sacred moments and is a place where sacred memories were made, it was simply a tool that the actual church, the people, used to meet its objectives. To say that a building is the church is to say that a pair of shoes are Jordan. While they may bear the name by brand, shoes don't win six championships. Shoes don't dunk from the free throw line. Shoes don't hit fadeaway jump shots from the baseline. Shoes don't hit game winning, championship winning shots. No, it's not the shoes. It's the person. And similarly, when it comes to the church, it's not the building. It's the people. Brick and mortar don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brick and mortar don't love and embrace and make people feel like they are a part of a community. Brick and mortar don't baptize and teach and feed the hungry and train children and repair marriages and rebuild confidence. Brick and mortar don't love people with the love of Jesus Christ. No, the people who are the church do that. And this is what was understood by the early church, those first believers in Jesus Christ, that they understood church to be the collective of people, not the construction of brick and mortar. And I just think that we are at a crucial time where God is calling us to reconsider what these early Christians already knew about what it meant to be called the church. Because the pandemic has broken old paradigms and old notions. And now we have the opportunity to reimagine what it means to show up effectively as the church in the 21st century. We can begin to ask questions like, what does it mean to be the church, to show up as the church in a city where over half of the residents are rent burdened? 
What does it mean to be the church, to show up as the church in a city where only 44% of black households own their home, while 75% of white households own theirs? What, what does it look like to be the church where in our own congregation, in a survey, a third of the people said that they didn't have enough personal savings to deal with the $500 emergency? What does it look like to be the church where in our own congregation, nearly a third of the people said that they have experienced homelessness in their lives. What does it mean? What does it look like to be the church in a city where people are traumatized by gun violence, displaced by gentrification, terrorized by the police, carjacked by thugs, disrupted by COVID-19? It's time for us to start figuring out how to best be the church rather than just going to church. And I think that there is no better way for us to spark our imagination than to look back at the book of Acts, because in it, we meet the church at its very beginning. Just as Jesus ascends to heaven, we pick up Luke's story about this startup movement that would eventually change the world. So, so let's spend some time looking at the raw form of the church before the Roman Emperor Constantine co-opted it and made it a state religion, before it became synonymous with big institutions and cathedrals and wars and land theft and slavery and child abuse, back when it was raw and real like early hip hop. Let's look back there for a lesson on what they did, how they embodied their faith how they lived into what they believed that God was calling them to do and to be. I raise this question because I've been troubled in my spirit for the past six months that what we're doing ain't it. What we have come to know and to perform as church in America over the years, this ain't it. And I am not the only one who is feeling it. We have half empty church buildings that were once full all over the country. We have lifelong church members in the wild, disconnected from any church and frustrated trying to find one. And some deciding they don't even want to look anymore. Our muscle memory tells us that we just need to, 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 to do better Sunday productions and create catchier sermons and more hooks to draw people in and everything will be back to normal. But I think that that ain't it. I think that we need to rediscover our realness, that, that we need to get back to the root of what church was intended to be, that we need to get out of the business of impressing and wowing and judging and getting into the business of impact. So I want to take you on a journey with me today to look with me at the book of Acts at how Luke says the early church that had no building, that had no stage, that had none of the formal infrastructure that has become synonymous with church. I want us to look at how they embodied their understanding of being the church. When I think about it, that there are two verses that stick out to me. The first one is that first one that I read to you, Acts chapter two, verse 44, that says all the believers 
continue together in close fellowship. Watch this and share their belongings with one another. The next one, Acts chapter four, verse 32 says all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not there. So they shared everything that they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to and give to those in need. Verse 36 says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold the field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. In both passages that I read, we are looking at what are effectively summative statements that Luke writes. Uh, What Luke writes in the form of these uh, summative statements is a part of this letter that he is writing, this two volume letter that Luke is writing to whom he refers to as the most excellent Theophilus. Now, we do not know exactly who Theophilus is, but it is presumed that he is a high ranking official in the Roman government. Luke rather is writing to him because Theophilus is either a new convert to Christianity or he is somebody that is curious about Christianity or possibly he is somebody that Luke thinks can be sympathetic to the movement and intervene on Paul's behalf, who by the time we get to the end of Acts, it ends abruptly with Paul still on trial. Acts is essentially a narrative account of the movement that would later be called Christian. And every few chapters, Luke pauses within that narrative to sum up something about the movement. From Luke, from Luke's summary in chapter two and his summary in chapter four, we learn something that sticks out about the economics of the early Christians in Jerusalem. It is that effectively they were practicing cooperative economics for the well-being of the collective. That they were pooling their money together to solve the problems of the people that were in the congregation. They were bringing resources together. They were investing their money in each other. They were bringing resources together to make sure that everybody was good. They saw the church community as one where they could bring their pennies together to make some kind of collective effort to do things that would impact the lives of the people in the church. Yeah, there was a radical unselfishness in their midst. There was a willingness to care about the good of the collective rather than just the individual. That there was an understanding that their strength and their safety was in their numbers. They were engaging in cooperative economics. In this age of rugged American individualism, where everyone is supposed to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, we have been socialized to believe that she or he who does it best does it alone. The self-made woman or self-made man is lauded and we are taught from an early age to solve the problems all alone. 
In classrooms as kids, we were scolded for, for sharing answers. We were scolded for figuring out solutions to problems and questions with others. We were told to keep our mouths shut and our eyes on our own papers, oftentimes rather than working together. We were taught to compete against each other for the best grades in the class, for the highest test scores, for admission to the best Colleges, we were socialized to believe in scarcity and that other people are our opponents rather than our allies. But could it be that our faith calls us to something different? That while rugged individualism is the mode of operation in the American empire, that there is a different ethic for those of us who are citizens of the kingdom of God. That for us, We trade in rugged individualism for radical collectivism. Instead of what about me, we raise the question, what about us? Instead of wanting to secure the bag so others can marvel at our glow up, we agree with Jay-Z's words from the Reasonable Doubt album in the song, Feeling It. If everybody in your clique is rich, your clique is rugged. Nobody would fall because everyone would be each other crutches. Collectivism. This is what Luke says the early church practiced. Three pushes come out of these verses that I have read in your hearing. And I think that they are pushes for things that we should begin to strive to do as we strive to be the church. The first thing is that we should ensure no one in our congregation lacks. Uh, Acts chapter four. Let's look once again at verse uh, verses thirty four. Through 35, it says there were no needy people among them because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I want us to look at that one more time. Chapter four, verse 34 and 35. It says there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them. And bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need, to give to those in need. Their understanding of what it meant to love one another went beyond saying, I'm going to pray for you. It, It extended way beyond that and extended to the very point of caring for the material needs of each other. That they, they cared whether each other had enough food to eat at night, that they cared uh, whether or not each other um, had enough to adequately house themselves and, and their family, that they cared whether or not people could take care of their day to day needs, that they cared whether or not their people were good. I imagine that people didn't have to be paranoid about the loss of income or a failed crop because they had the security of the collective to fall back on. I imagine that no one had to be afraid that if something happens to them and there is no longer a breadwinner in their family, that their family would not be left vulnerable because they knew that there was a whole community of Christians there to support them, to be a village around them, to be a tribe around their family. In the same way that they ensured that there was not a needy person among them, I want to say to you that we should ensure that no one in our congregation lacks. 
that everybody should have more than enough food in their house, that everybody should have a comfortable place to live. Everybody should be able to enjoy at least the basic comforts of life. And, and, And I must say to you that as a church, that we do that when we are called upon. Giving to the community fund. Y'all do that. We, we have been able to, to do all sorts of things. Purchase a vehicle for a member. Uh, provide financial support for members that were in need during challenging times. Thank you for being a church that wants to ensure that nobody in our congregation experiences lack. But can I push us to go further? Can I push us to be more proactive? To to make those efforts front and center rather than something that is a part of what we do only from time to time. What, What if our central goals, what if one of our central goals for the next year was to ensure that every member, every member of our church was secure in employment? What if one of our central goals for the next year was to ensure that every member had secure housing, that every member was secure in transportation, that every member was secure in emergency savings. And it was our collective work, our collective effort and our collective resources that made that happen. Let me say to you, secondly, we should engage in collectivism over individualism. Once again, Acts uh, chapter two, verse 44 says all the believers continue together in close fellowship and share their belongings with one another. Uh, Chapter uh, four, verses, uh, verse 32 says this. It says all believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything that they had. That there is the African proverb that goes something to the effect of if you want to go far, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That little proverb speaks to the difference between the collective and the individual spirit. The, The individual spirit cares primarily about me, myself and I, my family, my closest circle. But the collectivist spirit cares about the well-being of the whole. Can I just say to you that that say to you that it is this very Africanness that we are missing? We have abandoned it for a Western capitalist mentality. And what we have come to see over the past several decades as the black community has sought to solve its problems by adopting and assimilating into Western capitalist principles. What we have seen is that we have seen the rising of a few, but the sinking of the many. And so we have within our communities and even within some of our families, the tale of the haves and the have nots. But I want to say that if we are indeed and truly to rise as a community, it will not be because of the rise of several black billionaires for us to look up to and marvel at and see if we are to rise as a community. It will be because we decide that we will work as a collective, pulling resources together amongst us, pulling our dimes and pennies together amongst us to help each other do what we can't do alone. Despite legislation and even litigation, 
Banks are likely to continue to discriminate when it comes to lending us money for our businesses. But while we may not have enough money individually to fund our businesses, when we begin to think about what we have as a collective, there is plenty of money, even within our own congregation, to fund the businesses and the dreams of the people that are in our midst. This is what I mean by collectivism. Collectivism requires a deep unselfishness, though. It requires one to care about the well-being and even the uplift of other people, even if it does not mean my personal uplift or my personal come up. It, it abandons the capitalist approach that says I will only help you if somehow helping you helps me. Yeah. Instead, what it does is it says that by helping you, I have helped we. I have helped our community be better. I have helped your family be better. And in turn, by helping to lift you up, you can in turn help lift up others. And it is through this kinds of means that we make our climb. It is a radical notion. As radical as Jesus when he said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It is as radical as Jesus when he said, greater love has no one than this, that a person should lay down their life for their friends. It's radical love. It is a cross-bearing love. It is Paul telling the church to bear one another's burdens kind of love. This is what Christianity is to be. This is what it means to be the church. This is exactly what we see in Acts chapter two and what we see in Acts chapter four. We see this woven into the story of how they were together in prayer and together in bread breaking. We see woven into that that they were also together collectively, economically. They were so brought into, bought into the idea of collectivism that the word says that nobody thought about their possessions as merely their own. There was not a hoarding mentality amongst them. There was not, a under, there was not an understanding or a thought that what is here is simply mine. Now, we should understand that what is described here in the text is a description of what they did, not all the time, but from time to time. Not that they all sold all their possessions and properties, but that there were some who were property, those that had extra, those that had excess, that they when they saw a need within the community, they decided that rather than simply a charitable deed, that they would sell some of their possessions or property and bring those proceeds so that they could be used by the collective. Yeah. They wanted it to be able to benefit the well-being of everybody. Let me say to you that in order for us to get to this place, we must let go of selfishness. For some of us, traumatic experiences that some have had in our lives, perhaps growing up and experiencing lack at times in our lives has caused some of us to just live with a scarcity mentality. I know what that thing is like, and I struggle with it, too. I struggle sometimes with fear of eating the groceries too fast as if I don't have money to go to the store and buy some more. 
I, I struggle sometimes spending money as if I don't have some more to replace that. that. That's what I mean by scarcity. The idea that God has only created and given so much and, and the idea that at any moment the shoe may drop and we are experiencing deep lack. Now, I'm not advocating for frivolousness. I'm not advocating for carelessness when it comes to our money. But I am challenging this scarcity mentality that causes us to make moves out of a sense of lack rather than out of a sense of abundance. And that scarcity mentality will hinder us from working for the well-being of the tribe rather than simply focusing on the taking care of ourselves. This is radical stuff. But it's deeply Christian stuff that I'm talking about. This is this, this is deeper than buildings and stage and lights and three songs and a sermon type of stuff. This is Christianity manifesting itself, merging itself deeply into our lives and materializing into life changing and world changing things. And it's this type of Christianity. The people of God, I believe, must begin to engage with if we are to see real and deep and lasting impact. And if we are to regain that sense of satisfaction out of our faith. Lest I keep you too long, let me push on to my third point. My third point is that we should use our collective funds to make a social and economic impact. Last year, and I shared this a few Sundays ago in my announcements Last year, $504,000 came into City Point Community Church, over a half a million dollars. What if we began to think about that money differently? What if we began to think of it as our collective wealth that God has allowed us to pull together? What if we began to think of it in terms of the possibilities that it contains for making social and economic impact? I have been for the last year talking about starting an effort within the community fund where we provide down payment assistance for those that wish to buy homes. What, what if we directed funds directly out of the $504,000 that already comes in to help some people who want to become homeowners who are in our congregation, but they don't have the ability to set aside enough money on their own for the down payment and perhaps they don't have family that they can easily tap for those kinds of resources. Family is pulling on them for resources. What if we were able to redirect some of our collective wealth that we bring together through our tithes and offerings and we were setting aside money where we could provide that kind of assistance where it's $3,000 or $4,000 or $5,000 in grants to our members that are looking to purchase homes so that they have the support for down payment funds that they need to purchase their first homes. Those kinds of things can be generationally impactful in their lives. What if for members who are shoestringing their way through starting a business what if we brought together our intellectual capital because we've got dozens of MBAs in our congregation. We've got several people who are advertising and marketing professionals in our congregation. We've got tech people in our congregation. What if we brought together our intellectual capital to help those burgeoning business owners and also brought together some financial capital from our collective wealth to help those businesses? Now, what we've done 
is we've begun to move beyond individualism. We've started to move into collectivism. Now we have started to use the power of our community, of the community of our congregation to uplift the lives of one another. That there is an affordability, an affordable housing crisis in our city. Any of you that have recently rented a place understands how high rent is in our city. The majority of people in Chicago or 51 percent of the Chicago residents spend uh, or 51 percent of them spend over 30 percent of their money that comes in each month to just house themselves. People who that is true of are considered to be rent burdened. It appears to me that what this city needs and what people need is not another church building. We've got plenty of those and they're half empty on Sundays. What people do need is not another church, that they need affordable housing. I want to submit that perhaps the most transformational thing that any congregation can do right now in the city is to not build another church building or convert another facility into a church, but rather to build or create some affordable housing that begins to address the felt needs of the people in the city. Well, let me say this once again. There are plenty of places for people to go to sing and clap. There are plenty of places uh, for people to go and for black people to be affirmed at like, oh, wow, look at our beautiful church building. What we are missing is the impact. And, and I think that our generation, this generation must do something different. We must begin to imagine church different if we are to leave a legacy of impact for our children. We've got to begin to think differently. What if we started taking, and I'm still talking about that 504,000, some of our collective wealth, start using that as a down payment for us to purchase two flats and three flats around the city. And we take those buildings and we convert them into affordable housing for people where if the market rent is 1500 for the three bedroom, we rent them out for 1200 under market rate so that people have affordable housing. That, that is transformational church building use. Yeah. Not simply having a place to sing and clap. Yeah. But those are the things that impact people's lives who work hard every day. Those are things that impact the lives of people in our very congregation who are rent burdened right now, who are doing the best they can and all of the right things, but are continuing to struggle week to week, paycheck to paycheck because rent is too dang high. What if we begin to think differently, y'all? I want to say to you that now we're getting into impact. Now we're getting back to the heart of what it means to be the church to show up for each other and for people in general showing up for them, not just spiritually, but in material ways, including sharing our resources. Let, let me let me close by just saying this, y'all. Perhaps I have been looking at it all all along wrong. Perhaps there are some things that just 
my eyes and many of our eyes just could not see. But for the pandemic to stretch our imaginations about church. That we don't have to settle into muscle memory, that, that we don't have to settle into the mold and form of what we have come to know as church over the last 25 years, 50 years. But we can imagine a, something different. The Lord says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not see it? Can you not perceive it? What if God is desiring to do a new thing in our congregation? A new thing where the collective wealth that we bring together in the form of our tithes and offerings. Yeah, yeah, they cover church operations expenses. Yeah, yeah, there are some things that are never going to have to go away. But can we begin to reimagine some of those resources and begin to measure ourselves by impact? How do we improve the lives of, of those in our midst, not just spiritually, but as we see here in Acts, materially as well? That I want to submit to you. That that is part of what it means to be the church. It is taking those resources, making considerable impact to uplift one another. That's what it means to be the church. I, I'm through with it, y'all. I, I, I usually don't preach this long, but as you can tell, I am very, very passionate about this. Let's agree that this month throughout this series that we will not just let this be a series where we are um, learning more of the word. But let, let's let this be a month where we are praying and discerning and, and just saying, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. But what is God doing in our midst? What, what does God want to do differently within our congregation? To bring glory to him, to bring life change to people.